And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk to today's first five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I want to plant this seed at the start of the show and I'll come back to this throughout the show. This concept that was discussed on our show this past Thursday when Frank Gaffney, the founder of Center for Security Policy, joined us. And he was talking about, they've given a name to this concept called the othering. And he's basically talking about the idea that the way many people in on the left speak about politics, he particularly was launching off the Joe Biden speech at Independence Hall, um, last, now I guess 10 days ago, where uh, Joe Biden had the black background and bizarre red lights and Marines standing at threatening attention. And he barked and spewed about MAGA Americans and Trump MAGA Americans. And it was a very negative speech of the White House to end up having to backtrack a lot of things that he said but left the impression on America that the president, it just really pretty much hates half of America. And people felt very attacked by what he had to say. The brilliant spin that Frank Gaffney and the Center for Security Policy put on that was this idea, this psychological idea of the othering, which is the absolute intentional effort by people in power to divide a society by the words they use, the attributes they, they ascribe to other people to essentially treat some segment or group of society as the other, the unacceptable people, the bad people, the ones we're all supposed to hate. And they went through uh, historic examples, which were brilliant in their uh, analogies. Uh, what happened in China, in the Cultural Revolution, um, there was just a, uh, just a, a complete devastation of the culture of China with the very intentionally designed to make people hate other people who and their society. Same thing Hitler did to the Jews in Germany. They went through historic examples talking about the, it isn't just drawing political distinctions between policies. It's the idea of labeling somebody else, some group in society that you don't like as the others. And it's not just that they are to be segregated. The psychological operation is to impact the vast, what they hope are the vast majority of people to turn on, despise, and reject these others who are not allowed to be part of the society the leader is creating. This uh, It was a brilliant description by Frank Gaffney on our show last Thursday. If you didn't hear that interview, you should go back and listen to it. So that was the, the premise. I wanted to mention that first. And then I want to get to the UK and reparations on, on the, his first five. So part of what the left has done in this country is try to divide America along the lines of race. And they do it with the 1619 Project, all sorts of other vehicles that are have, at least on the surface level, some kind of legitimacy. But the entire goal of the left-wing effort is to divide America, to turn America into various groups pitted against each other. And so they're othering people who aren't on board with them. So Don Lemon, the CNN, you know, just smug as has ever been a, a, a newscaster, pundit, as there ever has been, Don Lemon of CNN, had the opportunity to interview someone who's representing the British royal family as they go through this week. Queen Elizabeth was buried, I think, yesterday. And so all the formal procession, a lot of talk in the media about the money that will be handed down in the royal family from Queen Elizabeth down to now King Charles and to his sons. And it's in the billions of dollars and the family is you know, able to or someone has responsibility to control that money and its distribution. So Don Lemon, you know, instead of all the great things he could have allowed the representative of the UK royal family say about Queen Elizabeth, he goes right for, well, what about reparations? So I want to have this play this clip. It was just brilliant. This British uh, representative of the, of the royal family in the UK, she just, uh, as they say, ate his lunch. So here's Don Lemon on CNN. Well, this is coming when, you know, there's all of this wealth and you hear about it comes as England is facing rising costs of living, a living crisis, austerity budget cuts and so on. And then you have the, those who are asking uh, for reparations for colonialism. And they're wondering, you know, $100 billion, $24 billion here and there, $500 million there. Some people want to be paid back and, uh, and members of the public are wondering, why are we suffering when you are you know, you have all of this vast wealth. Those are legitimate concerns. Well, I think you're right about reparations in terms of if people want it, though, what they need to do is you always need to go back to the beginning of a supply chain. Where was the beginning of the supply chain? 
that was in Africa. And when across the entire world, when the slavery was taking place, which was the first nation in the world that abolished sla uh, slavery? The first nation in the world to abolish it. It was started by William Wilberforce, was the British. In, in Great Britain, they abolished slavery. 2,000 naval men died on the high seas trying to stop slavery. Why? Because the African kings were rounding up their own people. They had them on cages waiting in the beaches. No one was running into Africa to get them. And I think you're totally right. If reparations need to be paid, we need to go right back to the beginning of that supply chain and say, who was rounding up their own people and having them handcuffed in cages? Absolutely. That's where they should start. And maybe, I don't know, the descendants of those families where they died in the high seas trying to stop the slavery, that those families should receive something too, I think, at the same time. It's an interesting uh, discussion, Hillary. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll continue to, to discuss in the future. Okay, folks. I love that. He had no idea where she was going to come out on that. And this is really a, you know, it's a little bit of a, a lying in wait, pouncing question. I'm going to guess ahead of time. Don Lemon did not say, by the way, I'm going to hassle you about reparations. But a couple other points in closing out the first five. One is that the very serious point this representative of the UK of the royal family is making is if you're going to say reparations, then where does it start and where does it stop and who is responsible? In America, the reparations movement, you know, every decade or so reemerges and some leftists in Congress start saying, yeah, we should have reparations for slavery. And then they create a commission. I actually think there's a commission functioning right now. And of course, the questions come up. What if your family descends from, you are Caucasian, but your family descends from the people in the North who fought to end slavery? What if your family has mixed race in its background? Where is the, uh, you know, where, where's the, who gets to decide what's fair? And who gets to decide who are fairly the recipients? Is it people whose families may have come to, uh, to America from Africa, her black, her African Americans, black Americans, but didn't have ancestors in America who were slaves, do they get? I mean, the whole thing of reparations has no logic to it, no capacity to really be a fair solution. But the deeper point, and I'll close out the first five with this, is Don Lemon and all other anti-American leftists in this country do not want reparations because somehow if we just will do a certain plan that they lay out, that suddenly America will be fair and decent, and then they'll move on. It's never the goal to set a one-time adjustment and or a one-time payment and then move on and move forward. The goal of people pushing reparations ultimately is socialism. It is using the federal government to redistribute the wealth of private individuals and corporations at the will of, at the behest of, those who happen to hold power. And it's not going to be a one-time thing. It's going to be ongoing. And even if there were a massive redistribution, and then you had people who emerged successfully and moved forward in their lives and made something out of what they had uh, received as reparations, then, you know, those folks, uh, you know, they probably need to be punished again and have reparations taken again. The point is reparations is not a movement to restore anything like fairness. It's a Marxist movement. It's a socialist effort to forcibly redistribute the wealth of others. No justice is possible out of it, but this is something that the left pushes and pushes because they understand for people who may be behind, who's suffering, people who may not have all the resources they need, it is an easy ploy to get those people invited into the Marxist left. Come with us, support us, vote for us. We'll take away money from the bad people who are successful and make sure you get more. It's very crass. And I just, I mean, Don Lemon, that was one of the few times I've seen him really pretty much bamboozled. He couldn't figure out where to go. Thank you very much. It was a great answer, and she is making the answer from the representative of the UK family making the really profound point. There's no logical starting point, or really, and the left doesn't want to go to logical starting point, because if you drive the reparations argument as far as it should to the root cause or the very beginning of the supply chain, as she says, who you really got to be going after, of course, are the black uh, tribal leaders in Africa who, who are African, you know, native to Africa, who were rounding up their own citizens or their or fellow black Africans 
throughout the, uh, say the, the continent and making them available for sale. Uh, and, and obviously no one in America, not even Don Lemon, is going to go after the uh, descendants of those people who were actually enabling the entire slave trade. And that, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. So we have someone joining us. Uh, she is available on Skype. This uh, is a woman named Cherry Hausdorf, and I met her only recently. Uh, she is a an author, and I have, I believe, Emilio, my happy producer, has her book available to show you. The look on this, if you could, yeah, there you go. That's the picture of her book. Um, so we can, that which we're going to be talking about today. Uh, she wrote this book to really encourage people um, to... Um, who, people of faith to understand and think through their role in America, their role in in helping to um, solve America's problems, be involved in politics. The book is called Author. The book is called Running Into the Fire: Why More Christians Need to Be Involved in Politics. So, welcome to the show, Terry Hasdorf. Thank you so much, Debbie. It's an honor to be with you today. Great to see you. Thank you. And I, I, we were saying before you came on today, so I've just started doing shows from our home studio. I don't have guests on Monday, so I was just rock and rolling myself yesterday, but you're our first guest from our at-home studio, and so far it's, it's working just great. So glad you're available. Okay. <laughs> well, before we get into your book, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners, you have really quite a, uh, a varied and broad background involved in politics, and so I'd love to have you tell our listeners uh, what you've done in politics before you got around to writing this book. Absolutely. Well, I got my start in politics very young. I actually went to Russia on an exchange program when I was in high school, and I traveled to seven different cities and saw firsthand what communism and socialism looked like. And I was so disturbed by the oppression of the people and the hopelessness and the fact that they had no ability to get involved and make a difference in their government, that literally when the plane landed back at JFK after three weeks in a communist country, I got down on my hands and knees and kissed the ground and immediately started going and volunteering in the governor's office for uh, my friend who had led the delegation to go over to Russia and then went on to intern in the White House, eventually was asked to stay on in the White House Office of Public Liaison, which is now the Office of Public, Public Engagement, and eventually went and worked uh, under Speaker Newt Gingrich for uh, the first chief administrative officer for the U.S. House of Representatives. And we were able to put reforms in place that to date have saved the taxpayers over $4.4 billion with some of the reforms that we um, brought forward trying to uh, cut waste, fraud, and abuse in the processes that the House of Representatives has. Um, and then I went on to work for Congressman Souter and Congressman Adderholt, eventually went back to my home state of Alabama and ran for Congress, and then took over a super PAC. And after all that, I just felt like God made it really clear I was supposed to write this book. And the book is called Running Into the Fire because I was actually talking with a friend of mine who had run for Congress about the same time that I did. And I asked him, why do you believe Christians shy away from being involved in politics? And he said, well, because they're afraid of it. They think of it as being dirty or corrupt. And I said, yes, that's what I hear over and over. He said, but what they really should be doing is thinking of it more like people who are in law enforcement or people who are firefighters because they're trained to overcome their natural fears. And instead of running away from the burning building, they run right into it. And I thought, wow, that's exactly what needs to be happening. We just need to stop being so afraid and giving into fear and do what we need to do to engage politically. Love that answer. I will tell you that one answer people hear also, because I do have different friends involved in trying to encourage Christians uh, in America to be more politically active. One other answer you hear quite frequently is, well, you know, I, I think my best calling is just to pray for the country. And, and heaven knows I love the Bible. I love Bible study. I love to pray. I, I you know, I, I, I think it's a beautiful part of Christianity. But I think the answer I'm just going to pray is it's just... I mean, at least it should be pray and listen for God leading in your life because America needs more people rooted in in, uh, in morals and values involved in the political system. Do you ever hear that answer? Well, I'd rather just stay home and pray. I, I hear that a lot, and it needs to start with prayer. Prayer is absolutely one of the most critical things that it needs to be first and foremost, but you don't stop there. Uh, we are in a time right now where this is an all-hands-on-deck moment when you have 65 to 67% of Americans identifying as Christians, and yet half don't vote. A lot of them aren't registered to vote. You have people who are not voting at all in the primaries. 
Oh my goodness. I mean, this is a time where our country has never been closer to the brink of socialism and socialism at its core is about replacing God with government and freedom with tyranny. And our very freedoms could be in jeopardy, including our religious freedoms. So it is a critical time for people to engage. And that's what I'm putting out a call to action to the body of Christ to do. I love that. I, I love that answer. And um, I'm going to tell you something amazing. I'm sure we'll get into it in a minute in your book. But I talked to you earlier today, or I was texting with you, telling you that um, your book begins by talking about having observed extreme poverty in Mathari Valley in Nairobi, mm-hmm. um, which was, I, I texted you and said, I cannot believe this because in college, I went to Kenya on a semester abroad and actually worked in Mathari Valley. So hmm. that, that was amazing. And then as I'm listening to your introduction to yourself, I swear it's a true story. I also went to Russia in high school when it was communist. Oh my goodness, Debbie. Okay. And had the same kind of, are we, um, uh, I'm looking for a document in the printer. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay. They, uh, it was, I mean, it was really mind blowing. And I remember this one, um, and interaction. Anyway, we, we did probably very similar things over there. Uh, we went to Moscow, Kiev, and Leningrad, which was <laughs> then still part of the start of Russia. And yes. uh, we, we had the opportunity to interact with some students. Uh, they had a translator there. And what I really walked away with, uh, and you may have had this reaction too, was they didn't know what freedom was. And so we were trying to, it's a kind of conversation back and forth, but they couldn't understand what we were talking about. Like, like why we would, what do you mean freedom? What, what, in fact, one of them said, what? Freedom to assassinate your president? I remember that so clearly. This person had heard about JFK and mm. thought, oh, that's what freedom is. So in a society where you haven't had freedom for a long time, you lose track of what it is. That's exactly right. And there's a lot of misinformation that can be spread. A lot of times I remember we went to uh, Comsomol meetings and um, these camps that they had for young people there. And there were 40 of us who were youth leaders from across the state of Alabama who were taken by the People to People Project. And the thing that shocked me the most was the indoctrination of the young people, how they would literally train these kids in things about uh, MIR, which was their definition of peace. Peace was the absence of opposition to communism. That's their definition. That was their definition of peace. I believe it still is. So you start looking at at all of these things that we take so for granted in the United States. And most people have never even traveled outside the country. So they don't realize how rare and how precious and how valuable what we have is. And when you do go outside and you see it firsthand, it's... It's the most overwhelming experience, and it's really what has been a catalyst for me up until this day to want to just stay involved and make a difference because we can. Okay, we're going to get you a book, I swear, but this is such an interesting discussion to have with you before we do. In America today, because I hear a lot of young people, especially those who have been kind of lured into thinking that the next generation of wisdom or the coolest thing to be is something more along the lines of Marxist or socialist, or, you know, they think they're the AOC types that who really are uh, intellectually ahead of the people who are locked on to foundational freedoms guaranteed in the Constitution, guaranteed in the Declaration. They think they've made advances, and they, they I've used the expression before, we need to have a like a renewal in our country of recognizing what freedom is, because as you said a moment ago, we are headed down the path toward Marxism. In fact, Sidney Powell was on my show like two months ago, and I was saying we're trying to fight, you know, we're headed toward going over the cliff to socialism. And she said, what are you talking about? We're already over the cliff. We're grabbing at the roots sticking out, thinking, wait, 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 we, want, we, we don't want to go here. And I think that really is true, that we are that far gone. And what's so alarming is that so many young people don't see that, don't know that. They don't see that. They have confused socialism with social justice, and they are not the same. Socialism has never worked. It has always failed every time it's been tried. And yet over and over and over, people are deceived into trying this. And I think it's very ironic that we have this immigrant, illegal immigrant issue right now that's so in the forefront. And yet when you look at most of the people that are in, in coming in, a lot of them are from places like Venezuela, 
where what they're fleeing, what they're coming here in droves to try and get away from is socialism. And yet that's what we are right on the brink of adopting here in this country. So this is not a time to shrink back. This is not a time to give in to fear. It's a time to stand up, stop being the silent majority, lean in, do whatever you can to get involved and be politically engaged. I, I love that. Um, as I mentioned before we started, I don't have your book in my physical, my, my usual thing interviewing people, I have their book with sticky sticking out and I'm flipping through one to the next. So it's a little more kludgy to uh, try it. to, right yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you can hold up when you want, but I, to try to review the things I wanted to ask you about. Um, one thing you do do in this book um, is you talk about, uh, in the very beginning, it was where you made reference to Mathari Valley in Kenya. Uh, you make reference to watching and these big problems in the world. It's always the church that's standing up. When you look at who's actually, it's not the Hollywood types who show up in Mathari Valley, it's the Christian church. I'd love if you just talk about that a little bit. Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, when I was in Kenya, it was 2007, and I'm asked to tour the Mathari Valley because of my role with USAID, which is the U.S. Agency for International Development. And I had never seen poverty that extreme. I grew up, you know, in Alabama, where we we definitely have some poverty, but it's <laughs> it was the most overwhelming place I had ever been. Uh, the slum there is so intense. The, the police and the fire department won't respond if people call them. There's raw sewage running down the middle of the street. There is no running water. There's no septic system. There's nothing. And these people are so desperate. And yet the people who are there serving them day in, day out, making sure that these orphans who have been uh, just running rampant in, in in high numbers because of the HIV AIDS epidemic uh, that hit so hard in that area, it was the people of faith who have stepped in to make sure that these orphans are fed. And it's the people of faith who get, the, you know, workforce development programs and education opportunities and all the different things that are needed so desperately. And if we can do this in some of the most extreme poverty situations and some of the most desperate conditions in the world, why are we so afraid to step in and get involved in politics? Politics is just like anything else. There's good actors, there's bad actors, but you know what? It's it, it, If you just start somewhere and you start learning who the players are and what the rules are and you pray a lot, God will use you. And I, I really feel like even, even if people are not called to serve in government directly or run for office, you, we have to get out of this mindset that, oh, that's just not for me. I'm just going to, I'm just going to disengage. No, if you are not called to do it directly, you still have to help support those who are. That's the role of the body of Christ. We are here to uh, play a supportive role because these people who are honest, who are trying to do the right things, can't do it alone. It would be the equivalent of sending a soldier out on the battlefield with no support or air cover. Uh, absolutely. I love that analogy. And I will say about the whole role of Christianity in helping America, this part of what has occurred, there has been a shift in uh, the way some churches want to help, where there is a, a Christian um, among the more liberal churches and um, larger liberal, often the non-denominational ones, what they're trying to say is, you know, yes, we are following Jesus' teaching, you know, feed the poor, feed the hungry, all the things Jesus said to do. And so they, to fulfill that, they advocate for, so vote for programs that, you know, the federal government can provide. It's like they transfer their personal responsibility as, as a Christian to care for others too. Yes, this is why I support big government. This is why I support Marxism. This is why, because I'm, that's my way of feeding the poor and, and helping the poor. What's your answer to that? Well, we've been throwing money at a lot of things for decades, and many of them are no better than they were when we started. And often it's personal responsibility and uh, people of faith stepping in and doing the things that are needed to support those who are taking their, their uh, needs seriously and, and doing everything they can to fulfill their own personal responsibility. That's what the formula for success is. Um, we've seen that with welfare reform. We've seen that with a lot of things over the years. Um, the government is not the answer to everything. The government plays a very critical role, but it's the three legs of the stool that have to come in. And so if you don't have uh, all, all of them working together, nonprofit, for-profit, and the government, uh, it's not going to be as, as uh, effective as it could be. And you can't say, well, the government is the answer to everything. We just need to keep throwing more money at it. That hasn't worked.
Absolutely. And there's something else that happens when you just transfer your personal responsibility as a Christian uh, to the government, which is you are, not, you know, when you're personally engaged in helping in any way, you're having interaction. And it's a, you know, you're, you're really loving your neighbor, you're seeing your neighbor, you're understanding the situation in your community. When you're just sending money to the government, it's like, you know, not my place, go away and somebody, so you're not really connecting um, the family of America. You're not catching the people, you're, you're letting you're the government. the heart out of it. It yeah, becomes taking, soulless. Yeah, there was a great quote. I think about Scalia, maybe a said the Supreme Court Justice Scalia said it about all this growth in government uh, programs to do the feed the poor and house the poor and all those things uh, is taking the heart out of giving and the gratitude out of receiving. So it was really something like that. And if you heard that quote, it was really good. Okay. Quote. Yeah, it is. Okay. So back to what you wrote about, you're, you're encouraging people uh, in the Christian churches in America to become involved to to do things so what what if you are just a person who's you love god you love your church you love the bible and you've never even tiptoed into the world of politics how do you even get started well if you're somebody who sees things happening around you that you're concerned about you want to get more involved you just don't know how that's what this book was written for it was written as sort of a call to action for the body of christ and a how-to guide it's filled with practical information based off of my 20 plus years of experience working in government and politics and campaigns and i've interviewed people who are political consultants and i've talked with friends who've run for office and i've poured all this information into this book so that people can know where the levers are. I try to decode and demystify a lot of things that might be complex. And I try to give people very practical information and next steps that they personally can take to get involved. It's it's meant to be a way to get you thinking a little differently about politics. And it's also meant to give people hope to know that we can do something to make a difference. I think the media so many times just reports on things that are so negative and people just throw their hands up and think, oh gosh, what can I do as one person to make a difference with this? But I'm here to say there's a lot you can do and I'm going to show you how. I, I love that. I love that. And I have to tell you too, um, in this maybe, I don't know what time period, last six years or so, certainly under President Trump and under uh, currently he who occupies the White House, Biden, uh, there has been a growth in activism. And I love seeing this. I see people who really haven't been political starting to see how severely left the country is turning, how we really are watching the kind of ongoing Marxist takeover of America, and they show up at school board meetings, are a great example. School board meetings, parents saying, I I'm not gonna have you teaching critical race theory to my children. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to have you pressing on transgenderism with my kindergartner, or even for that matter, my high school student. There have been people, and it's kind of like what's happened was they enter politics now because they are desperate, maybe is too strong a word, but they are deeply alarmed and they want to do something more than just fret at the dinner table over what little Johnny says happened in school today. And it, it seems like that's really what motivates a lot of people in politics is when you start to realize it's come home to me, to my home, whether it's your children, whether it's your your wallet, you know, your your paycheck, your or lack of paycheck. And that gets them nudging. But then you go, okay, I gotta do something. So I'd like to have you just run through some of the things in your book. You give in the, I don't know what chapter I'm in here, steps you can take to get started. You talk about that a little bit. Um, uh, getting involved in primaries as one good example. I'm telling you, I don't know how many people in America who aren't political even know when the primaries are coming. So where do they go to get information, how they get started? Well, that's a really critical time, Debbie. You know, the Secretary of State's office will always have information about when the election dates are. And so many people ignore the primaries. And yet for a lot of elections, the primary is the election. It's over after the primary because that's really the main the main you know party that's in in uh, power or or that will have the overwhelming number of people in in voting. And so if we don't get involved in that primary, that's where you weed out the good candidates from the bad or the mediocre. And many times uh, people slip through in in primaries that really shouldn't be getting the nomination, and then that's the only one that's left to vote for. Uh, over somebody that that is just you know really not a good choice. So uh, primaries are critical. Um, looking at this as something that you can do in more bite-sized pieces. In my research for this book, I, I 
realized that there's really just a little, a little over 3,000 counties in the United States. So I might not be able to make a difference to change the whole world. I might not be able to change the whole country, but I can sure get involved and make a difference in my county. And if we would just do more to engage even on a county level, that could have a huge impact on elections because, you know, those county officials, school board officials, a lot of those local races have a huge impact on just touching our daily lives. And I think most people just don't realize how much some of those people that are put in office make decisions that affect us on such a, a daily basis. They absolutely do. And, you know, it's kind of funny if you ha if you are really um, concerned about America and you haven't been very political, you probably know a friend who is and, mm -hmm. and someone you trust and respect. And I've had this conversation with people uh, for years is people will come. I mean, when I used to play a lot of tennis, like a lot of tennis, um, I would have the people in the tennis team, even though the team would say, okay, well, I want to break. Uh, tell me what's going on with this issue. What's going on here? Who should we vote for? What's going on with this proposition? You know people who are like this, so use that resource. Ask the people in your church, if you trust them, or your friends who are your, uh, you believe are your allies and have similar values, start asking questions and reading things is a huge part too, because if they can say, yeah, you know what the best thing to do is show up at this city council meeting, this county commissioner court thing, and, and talk about this issue. I think for many people, and I love your point actually about local politics, the local level, like what we discovered really, much of America discovered during COVID, the lockdowns, the shutdowns, they may have been motivated by the NIH and what Dr. Fauci had to say, or justified by his statements, but the actual legal authority behind the lockdowns and the shelter in place, all that, it was local officials. And I think it, it opened the eyes of many Americans to realize that's where a lot of power resides. That's right. That's absolutely right. In fact, you know, the local, one of the things that I remember hearing when I worked on Capitol Hill was little staffers grow up to be big staffers. <laughs> and, you know, it's the same thing with, with local officials. People who are in local positions many times go on to run for statewide office or even national. So, you know, those people who are good, solid people, we've got to get behind them and help them because who knows where they might wind up. But if we don't get behind them when they're first starting out, they might give up and go off to something else. And then that void will be filled by someone else. And it may not be the kind of person that we want elected. Absolutely true. And actually your point, back to primaries for a moment. So many people lament that once someone's elected to office, you know, we can't, we can't do it over. They won't come home. They run forever. The incumbent always wins. And I don't have the statistics uh, at the top of mind this moment, but I've periodically discussed them. Incumbents win almost every race. I mean, the, the percentages are staggering, very mm -hmm. difficult to take out an incumbent especially in a primary uh, you know, where you're being challenged by someone in your own party. Mm -hmm. But that becomes part of the problem in Washington, which is the longer you stay, you become the entrenched or some of them become the swamp and you can't, and you have, you know, Fred and, you know, Edna show up to vote and they haven't looked at a thing and they go, now who do we vote for? Oh yeah, this guy's name sounds familiar. And that's how the uh, incumbency is perpetuated because there aren't enough people looking. So primaries are a huge time to get involved and actually call the office. Almost everyone running in a primary election, they want you to reach out to them. They have a local office. They want a voice. Reach out and say, you know, I'd love to hear what you stand for or why you're doing this or when is your next campaign event? They all have campaign events. They want you to come. They That's want right. you to ask questions. It's a, it's a huge opportunity. It's like low hanging fruit. That's exactly right. In fact, I think most people don't realize how much elected officials often pay attention to the things that they write in or call in about. It really is our, our duty and our right, and it's something that we shouldn't wait until uh, an elected official is doing something wrong to finally get in touch. Look for something that you can praise them for that they're doing right and get let them know that you want to encourage them to do more of that. Um, I think one of the big things that I talk about a lot in the book is just getting behind people who we know are doing the right things and supporting them more. And then also going into a lot of these meetings that are readily available and making our voices known. So town hall meetings, constituent type of events, things where, especially in election years, people are paying a lot more attention to the constituents. We've got to make more use of those. Love that. One last thing about uh, as a 
as a Christian who's, you know, maybe you're not particularly politically active and you think, well, my role is really to, I don't know what it is. And you probably, and, and people, you know, women and men, they have busy lives, especially they have kids at home. They have a schedule to keep in a house. They, they got to get little Johnny to soccer on time and go do this and that. So they feel that you're really busy. And so they want to leave politics to somebody else and, and think, well, there are people who are professional at this. They're politicians. They're supposed to solve these problems. Part of getting involved is part of your duty to love your neighbors yourself. If you see this country going downhill, which it is rapidly, as you know, as we're already over the cliff towards socialism, right now we're scrambling to get back up and hold on to freedom in America. If you see that and you know how evil socialism is, you know the evils uh, at the hands of every socialist and communist country in this world, part of your justification to yourself, your motivation is to say, this is part of loving my neighbor. I'm not going to leave them. I'm not going to abandon America to this horrible ideology that's taken a, gotten a foothold in America. I'm going to be a fighter, not an ugly political, you know, smear job type things, but truly uh, profoundly important values that you can stand up for and stand against this Marxist takeover of America. You're, you're loving your neighbors yourself. How do you like that argument? I love that. And civic engagement and political engagement is something that, you know, all of us have the right and the ability to do. We just need to take advantage of that and do more of it. And when you do, it's like anything else, you get into it. And sometimes it can be really fun. I mean, there's there's things that are, are, are you know, areas where you might want to be careful and stay away from when you're first easing in. But going and volunteering on a campaign or going and, and being a poll watcher or just doing things to get involved in the process. You learn so much and you gain a deeper appreciation for the people in your community and the ones that are, you know, stepping up to, to sometimes put their whole lives on hold to go and sacrifice to run for office or do things like that. They can't do it alone. They've got to have support. And that's, that's really what the body of Christ needs to rise up and do more of. And on that note, there's a great, great point. We're speaking, my friends. First of all, if you're listening on radio, uh, we are speaking with Terry Hasdorf, and she is the author of the book, Running Into the Fire, Why More Christians Need to Be Involved in Politics. You can order it on Amazon, and you can, and it's a really, I, I uh, have it just on my Kindle, but I'm going to get it so I can mark it up and highlight it and do all my usual thing. But it's a really, it's both pragmatic as well as inspiring and it is motivating. And these are the kind of things, you know, the ideas in here and the arguments made, they're exactly what America needs to hear. Um, and, and especially the body of Christ in America trying to rise up against, among the many evils of Marxism, it's always godless. And it's always the people of faith who are attacked first once Marxism gets a foothold in any country. People of faith are the victims, another reason to get involved. So Terry Hasdorf, thank you for taking time to join me today. Thank you so much, Debbie. It's been such an honor. I really enjoyed it. I did too. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Thank you so much. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so my friends, I'm going to tell you that um, this is a, uh, I say it often, it's a great time to be active in politics, but it really, really is. It is a great time in America to be active because the issues are so stark. The What I see is the dangers to America moving forward are just, uh, they're, they're undeniable. They're undeniable. Um, I want to take a minute before I go. I have two other stories I'm going to cover today. I'm going to very quickly, I'm going to do this every day until our summit. Remind you, remind our listeners that you can attend our upcoming summit on Saturday, October 15th. We have a summit here in Dallas. It's the third annual Women for Freedom Summit. Third annual Women for Freedom Summit. We have over-the-top outstanding speakers uh, who will spend the entire day filling you with knowledge, inspiration, and practical advice and how-tos about literally dozens of issues facing America. Um, I tallied up last night. We have 16 speakers. We have a great plan for the day. We have experts on China. We have uh, Gordon Chang, wonderful expert. We have the amazing internationally known Dr. Simone Gold, uh, founder of the America's Frontline Doctors, the person who spoke up early on during COVID. Uh, we have, some, we have um, so that's Simone Gold. We have Laura Logan, uh, the producer of the recent film Selection Code, 
home run thinker and and producer of that film exposing election fraud in America, Sidney Powell. We have Frank Gaffney. Sidney Powell, just an excellent source of knowledge on uh, not just election law and election fraud, but the broader context of the rule of law in America, how we are losing the rule of law in America. She's always stellar. Uh, we have just, just a whole array of amazing people. Tina Peterson, uh, excuse me, Tina Peters, pardon me, Tina Peters, uh, who is a Colorado Cortez County clerk who uncovered and exposed to the world the fact that the Dominion voting machines are not only vulnerable to hacking, but actually were hacked in her county in 2020, exposed that, and for that has been now the recipient of uh, 10 charges against her. She has 10 uh, I think it's uh, seven felonies and three misdemeanors against her for simply exposing the truth about Dominion voting machines, exposing massive election fraud. We have them, and we have Kevin Freeman, who's going to just fill us all with understanding that we really need to have about ESG and digital currency. Uh, we have Evan Sayet, who's a really insightful writer about woke supremacy. He, I, I read his book and like, you know, I, I just couldn't put it down. Really great book, expo exposing and explaining how wokeism has taken over uh, not just the youth, but corporations and other people in America and how he believes we are going to get through this. I certainly hope he's right. Christy Hutcherson, a wonderful expert on the border. So we just have a great day. So go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, americacanwetalk.org. And at our website, you will see the uh, flyers up with all the speakers. There is a, uh, you can click on the button, get tickets. You can get your tickets today. Uh, we're going to have a full, great, great day all, Saturday, all day Saturday, October 15th. Starts early morning. We rock and roll all day. And then we have for our sponsors, we have a Friday evening special private reception with Dr. Simone Gold, a real chance for her to tell you about her recent episode in federal prison for doing absolutely nothing wrong except for making the Biden administration mad at her. And Saturday evening, we have a very special private dessert reception with Laura Logan. It's just going to be a great day. You don't want to miss it. Um, and when you go to our website, grab the URL uh, and you can send this invitation around to your friends. If you email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com, americacanwetalk at gmail.com, put in the subject line, send me some inv invitation. Just put, send me the summit invitation. I will send it to you via email and you can forward it to your friends. We want to have a packed house. It's a great, great event, third annual. The last two were simply outstanding and this will be just as outstanding. So I want to push that. Okay. So now I want to hit two of the quick stories today. Um, one, actually, and if you, I'm going to tell, um, you know, it's funny doing the show from home. I can't see Emilio. So I have to like text him or something. Emilio, I want to hit in a minute. I uh, want to have go over both the my pillow as well as the H2 Bev uh, ads. But before that, I want to hit BYU volleyball fallout. I just want to tell you quick things about this. You may have heard the story that there was a Duke versus BYU, Brigham Young University, uh, women's volleyball game. And at this volleyball game, a woman who plays for Duke, uh, a black athlete who plays for Duke was serving. She's at, she's at BYU and she claimed that she heard in the audience, some of the very, very rowdy uh, students yelling while she was serving. And she claimed she heard a racial epithet used against her. I assume it was the N word. I didn't, I didn't dive in, but she claimed it was racial slur, racial epithet used against her. So she made this complaint after the game. And there was, uh, you know, a lot of instantly, everybody steps back. Oh my gosh, this is terrible. She identified one particular student. I'm not sure how claimed he, she thought he was the one that student at BYU was permanently expelled from all future games at BYU. And then BYU looked into it. They did a big investigation. They played every single tape that they could come up with. Every single tape they could come up with of the game. And you got to know at that kind of arena, you know, they have, there's video cameras everywhere. There's, you know, even in a noisy game like that, video cameras, they have to have them for security, for safety. They reviewed every tape they have of the game, including they looked at particularly this young man who was identified by her as having said that word, uh, whatever the racial epithet was. Um, and BYU, after a thorough investigation, announced that they could not find any evidence of this racial epithet having been said. Couldn't find any evidence. And so they actually told the student 
who previously been told he was permanently banned from coming to uh, the uh, games, that he was, they, they removed the ban, he's allowed to come to games again. What I wanted to follow up, and I told you that story the other day, I want to follow up, my take on this and why I'm so bothered by it is, I want you to think about all the innocent victims, because this whole incident is arising out of the anti-American Marxist left obsession with race, obsession with race, the constant battering America takes uh, by words out of the mouth of Joe Biden and military leaders and the mainstream media. The uh, I mean, just everywhere that left-wing thinking prevails, there has been a just a cacophony, a, just a, a an avalanche of accusations that America is a systemically racist country and that there's racism around every corner. And so, and this is it is instilling fear and 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 sadness and hatred and resentment and suspicion in the minds of millions of Americans. And I'm telling you, I said the other day, I'm sure I'll say it again. Of course, there is racism in this country on the, and, and among people of every race, ethnicity, national origin, and skin color. Racism has never been banished in this world, in any society. But America is pretty darn great about it. America had uh, has a an amazingly high um, activism level in in demanding uh, that we don't have racism. We have federal laws and state laws that allow you to, to sue if you believe you've been the victim of discrimination. We have intense political correctness at every college campus. I mean, the idea of even any fan at a game saying that word does not strike me as true. It just, I, I mean, I, I have been around college games. I mentioned last time, you know, I've, I've been at college basketball games where, you know, the fans can be brutal if a player, you know, shoots or tries to make a basket and just completely misses and the, you know, ball goes off the edge. The other team will, uh, the fans from the other team will chant air ball, air ball the rest of the game every time that player gets his hands on the ball. This is just, this is just college enthusiasm about uh, sports. Now, I don't know what they yell in volleyball games, but the idea that the fans were rowdy, that they were unsettling, that they were annoying, of course they probably were. And they are at every university in America. Fans are excited for their own team and they're trying to give the other team a hard time. This is, this is grown-up athleticism. But back to what happened at BYU. So BYU first, you know, apologized. They removed this kid. They did a thorough investigation. And they said, you know what? We see no evidence at all. And they had a lovely statement, a short little statement, that we stand by our students, by our uh, athletes and students. Uh, we have no tolerance uh, for racism. Or I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing their announcement, but, you know, we strongly support uh, inclusion and diversity. And, and, you know, we have no evidence this occurred. I want to just say things that have happened since then, that I, the reason I want to raise it again today. Uh, one is that there was a coach, there is a coach for the women's volleyball team um, at UNC. So she's the coach, um, I'm sorry, University of South Carolina. Um, and this, the coach of the girls, uh, women's basketball team at University of South Carolina named Dawn Staley. Immediately after the story emerged that this Duke player had been the recipient of a racial epithet at BYU, she, this coach, canceled all future games for the next two years between her school and uh, BYU. And even after BYU comes out and says, you know, there's no evidence of this at all, she you know, dug in she, with both feet, dug in both feet saying, absolutely, you know, I have no regrets. We are not going to play against that team. And so, you know, I don't know if her students actually care whether they get to play that team. I don't know if that was a big rivalry or not a rivalry at all. But I do want to get around to talking about when you take stands like this, you know, take a stand like this. And this young student, the student from Duke, the, the um, volleyball player from Duke, she is, you know, she's saying, absolutely, I know I heard it. Let me just say about her, it's very possible, given the 
racial tension intentionally created by the anti-American left is entirely possible. She expected to hear it because she went to a game at BYU, which is overwhelmingly white. I don't know the percentage, but it's massive north of 90% white student population. Student, yeah, population. So this uh, black player from Duke shows up at the BYU game. She may have, just because of the endless, incessant, relentless harping by the left on race, she may have just expected to hear something bad, expected to be mistreated, expected these people, uh, because of their skin color, were thinking bad things about her. She may actually believe that she did hear it. She may not be concocting any of it. She may actually thought she ever had heard it. And it's even possible, even though the tapes were examined and no evidence was found, it's possible it was said. And just, for whatever reason, didn't get picked up. But she is a, assuming it didn't happen, which I'm telling you, I want you just to think about the politically correct environment in every college in this country. Politically correct, you can't even misuse pronouns. You can't even use a pronoun that someone doesn't like. You can't even say, hey, where's your lovely accent from? Because that's a racist thing to say. The idea that in a public venue, a massive public venue of a volleyball game with fans all around, I assume a few Duke fans, mostly BYU fans, I find it extremely hard to believe that some racial epithet would be thrown out, flung out at a black athlete from Duke in the middle of a game with all those witnesses around you. I mean, schools don't tolerate, and they shouldn't tolerate, any racial epithets. They shouldn't tolerate it. But the idea that this actually happened strikes me as unlikely. But whether it did happen, didn't get detected, or, or whatever really happened, just think of the standard that this coach now, this football, uh, excuse me, volleyball coach, is setting for her players, and really, you know, it's probably picked up by others, setting the idea that once an accusation has been made, was made by this player, the accuser must always be believed, regardless of the evidence. The accused, BYU, is always guilty, regardless of the evidence, and nothing you do can change that. No investigation, no, I mean, nothing you do can ever change the rule that this coach is setting, which is, if you make an accusation, you must be believed and no one can ever doubt you. And if you are accused, you are guilty and nothing can ever vindicate you. And even if someone were saying, yeah, that's right. So is that the policy? Is that the rule, the idea we want to embrace for our whole society? Is that what we want to say? That anytime someone's accused, no due process, no assumption that, that of innocence until an investigation occurs, that once an accusation happens, the accused must be believed, the excuse me, the accuser must be believed, the accused must be punished, and there's no, and we never, ever, ever deviate from that. Because if you say that, it has to apply to everyone. The rule of law idea, it has to apply to every single American of every race, ethnicity, national origin, skin color. The new rule is not, or the, the standard rule of law concept, accusations made, Everyone's entitled to due process, do a thorough investigation, and then you figure out the best you can what occurred, and maybe the accuser is correct, and maybe they weren't, and maybe the accused is bad, and maybe they're not. What this, not just as one coach, but the ideology of the anti-American left is, once an accusation's been made, uh, you know, at the, the ball game's over, everything's done, all done, no more conversation. And so that's what this school is now announcing. I really hope the school gets pressure. This uh, uh, school, University of South Carolina, gets pressure. Um, it's Dawn Staley. Uh, she actually gave her, st the coach is a black woman coach of University of South Carolina uh, women's volleyball, said, I don't care whether there's evidence. I don't care what the investigation said. I stand by it. We're not playing them anymore. I mean, just think about what that does. And my larger and political point in this is there is a cost. There's an impact on America's society. When we have constant drumbeat pummeling by the anti-American Marxist left, of critical race theory, of you know, uh, massive racial injustice ongoing, 
of you know of uh, systemic racism, institutional racism. Biden holds something in the White House talking about it. The cost is to shift the impact on the entire society. This young Duke player, I don't know, was really said. I don't. I'm gonna go out there and say. It, my my guess is the word wasn't said that she thought she heard. Maybe it was. But what is the impact if we just let the left continue to infect like a poison the American culture and society by their endless, relentless battering of America and Americans uh, claiming America is so deeply racist? And, and honestly, America has made such great progress. Many black conservatives speak up and say what I am saying. Many black conservatives do, trying to say this country is not systemically racist and the left uses race for political gain. And they most certainly do. Okay, I had one more topic and um, I just want to, I'll, I'll do it very, very quickly. I talked at the beginning of the show, I reminded you about the, the interview with Frank Gaffney, which was um, last Thursday. And among the things he talked about was this concept of the othering, how the left just constantly vilifies, constantly attacks and vilifies Anyone who won't agree with them on any topic, it's kind of a, a blown up or, an ex or a ex more extreme version of cancel culture. What the left does is say, if you won't agree with us on any issue, you are othered. You are put into a category. You're the others. You don't belong in society. You can't be part of society. They want you to feel excluded. They want the rest of society to turn on you. And they do this. And this was what you know Biden was trying to do in that speech at Independence Hall we kept attacking MAGA Republicans. So I'll share some interesting uh, statistics with you uh, as we get to the close of the show today. Um, and, you know, I'll have to wait till uh, tomorrow's show. And tomorrow's show, we'll talk about our wonderful sponsors for this show. Uh, we have both the H2 Bev people and the um, MyPillow, and they're both great products. I hope I will tell you more about them tomorrow. But first poll is, true story, a majority of Democrats in this country a majority of Democrats now believe that there are tens of millions of dangerous MAGA Republicans. I mean, for crying out loud. There are dangerous people of all backgrounds in this country, of all political leanings. The idea of MAGA, Make America Great Again, is the most Main Street, apple pie, mainstream, Main Street, you know, tethered to America's founding idea. And... What Biden and other leftists have done is instill fear in the hearts of Americans. They've othered the MAGA Americans with the idea, if anyone supports the MAGA agenda, they're probably dangerous. So they now have a majority of Democrats believing that there are tens of millions of dangerous MAGA Republicans. I mean, just, just so absurd, it's scream level. But a good news poll, and I'll close this show up before I get to why it matters to you. A good news poll was talking about a majority of Americans, and this I believe, a majority of Americans are more concerned about the socialist left than they are about the MAGA Republicans, as well should be the case. 55% of Americans are more concerned about the socialist left than they are about the MAGA Republicans. And I mean, the 45% of respondents um, said they're more concerned about the MAGA Republicans. But I also want to know, um, actually most voters, 54%, believe the number of dangerous MAGA Republicans is grossly exaggerated. I mean, the, the point is, the American people are pretty smart. Biden and the left spends all day long politi with political messaging, trying to make you hate your fellow American, make you doubt the goodness of the American people make you doubt the goodness of the people who support the MAGA agenda, which is simply to restore, to bring back, to reawaken the idea of America, the idea of freedom, the idea that came from our declaration, the idea we all have rights from God, that we're all equal, that we have a right to live in freedom, that we have a right to the promises of the Bill of Rights. These MAGA ideas that we ought to really have a border that we ought to really have a military capable of fighting, that we should stop obsessing over pronouns in the military and instead teach those people how to be defenders of America. These are Main Street ideas, and this is what makes the left so crazy. I'll close the show by saying this and turn to telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. I'll close the show by saying this. The renewal of the love of America that came about 
from the Biden um, that came out about through the Trump campaign, the Trump presidency, the renewal of love of America, that make America great again, that ret- really eyes open recognition how much the left tears America down. MAGA will outlive Trump. The renewed love for America, respect for America, is an idea that will long outlast the human lifespan of Donald Trump. It's a renewal of love of America. And the love of America, the love of freedom, the love of free markets, the love of a strong, robust free market economy, the love of a secure border, the love of a strong military, all the things that MAGA stands for, all those things are roadblocks in the left's socialist takedown of America. This is why the left attacks MAGA so hard. It's not really because Trump is a bad guy. It's not really anything about Trump. The leftists, the the, the thinkers of the left, the Obamas and Soros, the the, the, the people who mold and, and create the leftist agenda, they recognize the renewed love for America, the renewed love for freedom, the renewed love of the promises of the Declaration, the Constitution. All of that presents it's a it's a it's, it's a death it's a, it's a poison pill. It's it is a killer of their agenda to take down America. They can't take down America. Take down America, the sovereign, the free, and the great. If a majority of Americans are growing in love of America and respect for America's founding ideas. This is really why the left attacks MAGA so much. They want to make you think it's attacking Trump, and they are attacking Trump. But what they really recognize is if a majority of Americans get so strongly uh, imbued with love of America's freedom, they, the Marxist left, will not be able to continue to take America down. And this is why they're so determined to try to other the MAGA Republicans. Hang in there, friends. MAGA is all about loving America, loving America's freedom and greatness. We are winning. The majority of Americans are right with us. Hang in there with the idea of America, the idea of making America great again. The left is desperate. They are flailing. They are hysterical. They can see if we had fair elections this fall, they will lose and they know it. And this is why they have gone to hysteria level, attacking the idea of MAGA and MAGA Republicans. They're really attacking you, the American people, you, the majority who voted for Trump in 2020. They're attacking you because you're starting to believe in the idea of America that they are trying to destroy. I close this show every day by telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we start our show today talking about the um, UK and the royal reparations, Don Lemon Sour. I try to make it funny about that, you know, Lemon Sour. Anyway, Don Lemon at TV interviews is Queen Elizabeth's passing to raise the question of reparations against um, against British monarchy, monarchy for colonialism. British spokeswoman replies with unexpected firmness and clarity, Great Britain was the first country to abolish slavery at the hands of William, not only his, but he was a, a strident spokesman, William Wilberforce. A reparation should be sought from the first link in the slavery supply chain, says this UK spokesman, spokeswoman, the black African kings who sold their own people into slavery. Reparations should be paid to families of Great Britain soldiers who died to help end the slave trade. Don Lemon, totally befuddled, left thankfully speechless by British spokeswoman, had no clue about this true history. Lemon is a product of left-wing narrative indoctrination. It would be funny if it were isolated to Lemon, but it's a huge segment of miseducated America. Untruth met with truth. Untruth will eventually fall. Americans must rise and speak truth about America now. And the BYU volleyball fallout, viral claim of racial epithet, shouted at a Duke-BYU women's volleyball game, deserves attention. Thorough investigation by BYU of game video shows no evidence of any such shout. Students yelling racial slurs in close public settings in a USA university in 2022 seems unlikely, but not impossible. 
A culture of suspicion has been created by leftists and FBI, DOJ, Biden, legacy media's incessant claims about systemic racism in America. Some racism exists in every race, but the endless exaggerated hype is false and leads to division, suspicion, and resentment. Race is a tender topic. It is possible, maybe even likely, that the Duke player believes that's what she heard. What's the answer when there's no proof of wrongdoing, when no proof of wrongdoing is found? We need the same standard for everyone. Is accused is always guilty and accuser must always be believed. The new standard we apply to all. And where is the due process in that UNC coach is actually University of South Carolina, said the wrong school, University of South Carolina coach, um, deciding to punish BYU despite no evidence sets a bad precedence. And then the impact of othering, fear of MAGA versus fear of socialists. Marxism, socialism depends on dividing society into groups, fighting each other. Othering is the word for demonizing, scapegoating a group. Hitler othered the Jews, made them to blame for all ills of society. The Biden administration, the FBI and DOJ are determined to achieve othering as to MAGA supporters, threat to the republic. Threat to our way of life. The Biden administration, FBI, DOJ will fail in this effort. MAGA supports supporters are ordinary Americans who want to make America great again. Elias leftists demonize MAGA because it stands in the way of their Marxist agenda. Honest Americans know honest patriots who love their country. That's MAGA supporters. Americans see socialism as the enemy because it is the enemy of freedom. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America Can We Talk about America. Can you